Welcome to the PEO podcast, where we interview industry leaders to discuss all things PEOs. From compliance to technology to client relations and everything in between, I'm your host, Andreas Toller. That's your business lifeline. And it's really fascinating because as you're going up and you're growing, and you can imagine growing as you're going up, you're growing in sales uh, on one axis is that and time on the other axis. So as you go over time and your sales go up, you see this growth. And then all of a sudden, if you see the sales decline over time and then you hit a bottom and you go back up, that's kind of the structure of it. Welcome to the PEO podcast. Today, I will be talking to Brent Tilson and his book, Go Slow to Grow Fast, and the concepts of different stages of the business. We talk about key numbers that every PEO should measure and review to grow the business. Hey, Brand, welcome to the show. Thank you. It's great to be here and excited to spend some time with you today. Yeah, like, likewise. Thanks for taking the time. Um, you know, I always like to, to, to start off with getting to know our, our guest here. And um, but if there, is there anything unique about you that maybe your team doesn't know about you, something uh, like a unique uh, anecdote you, you can tell us? It's always interesting when people say, what's unique about you, right? You think about, <laughs> oh, what's, what's in my history that makes me unique or something I do? I think what's unique is I enjoy traveling to unique destinations. You know, went to Sydney, Australia a few years ago. And for somebody from the Midwest, that's not a common place. You hop on a plane and go 20 hours to go see. Then I had to up that. So I went to Egypt and did a tour of all the uh, antiquities and have been down inside King Tut's tomb. I actually have been to the Great Pyramids and climbed up the inner part of it in this little three by three shaft that took you up to the very inner chamber of the Great Pyramid, which is pretty cool, and got to ride on, you know, a camel. And then uh, another destination was I uh, went to Israel, got to uh, go to see all the uh, history of Israel, go to the Dead Sea and lay in the Dead Sea and made the mistake of getting some of that water in my mouth, which is <laughs> horrific. <laughs> It's the saltiest place on earth. And boy, that was a mistake to get just a tab of uh, that salt water in your mouth. But uh so that's a little bit unique by me is I like to go do those things. I, you know, it, it's just fun it's to see what the world has. My next question for you is what, what, what's next on the bucket list in terms of travel? I know we're, we're kind of like still that there's a lot of restriction, right? But, um, you know, what, once, once we are past I, that. I is- was planning a safari. I would like to go on about two weeks safari in Africa and just really go out and just see what that's all about. Yeah, it's certainly something that that you and I share the passion for, for travel, uh, adventure, riding experiences. So tell us about uh, your journey in the PO industry. How did you get started? You know, I, we're in the middle of our celebrating our 25th year. And in fact, it would have been, uh, I guess, 26 years ago this last week that uh, I incorporated the business. So it was May 25th of 1995 and started it in September of 95. But my background, I'm a CPA. I started off my career one, back in the day, one of the big eight accounting firms. That's I'm dating myself because there's not big eight anymore. There's only four. But well, right, yeah, uh, yeah. K, KPMG is where I started my professional career. And I've always wanted to be a, an entrepreneur. I just didn't know what I wanted to do. But I was enjoyed accounting. So I started my own CPA firm just 
within a, a year after getting my CPA uh, license and just that entrepreneurial bug to even do that. And then as I'm, as a CPA working with uh, these small businesses and helping them navigate all the little things that they do to run a business. And I, I'm more of an entrepreneur than just a CPA. So I just love helping them with their business plans and strategies and ideas. And so I was on this journey to try to find something in addition to do or looking at maybe alternatively to, to as compared to just a practicing CPA all my life. And I got into the PEO space because I was working with a small client who had uh, was a new business he was creating with the idea of processing. He wanted me to process payroll for a couple hundred physical therapists that he was going to have a contract with hospitals. And I thought, boy, you're always in payroll tax trouble. I thought, well, what if I ran the payroll? What if I was the employer and I'd let, I'd lease these employees to you. I'll take care of all of it. Little did I know it was an industry. I mean, I'm coming up with this idea sitting in my desk one day and here I start researching. It's like, oh my goodness, that's an industry. And, uh, I, I was immediately drawn to it because I had the, what I thought was the knowledge and skills to actually begin it and leverage my CPA firm to start it and incubate it, as I call it, within the CPA firm. And so that's what I did in 1995. I was like, okay, here we go. I'm going to start a new business inside my CPA firm. And off it went. So, so tell us a little bit about the growth of the company. Was it all organically from within the CPA firm or did you, did you have some M&A activity over the years? You know, we've done some M&A. It's, it was primarily growing, and, and it was kind of funny. It's a great question because I was real hesitant to go out and sell to my CPA client. So I felt like I had an, an unfair sales advantage as their CPA to go say, hey, try this new service as a new business. And as a CPA, you have these ethics and requirements and things you have to kind of live by. I felt you know, like I needed to go you know, outside of that market. So I went out and really sold to, you know, small businesses. And it was a real trailblazing experience because in 1995, people didn't believe what we were doing was legal. <laughs> and it's like, no, it's legal. Well, I don't know. And so it, it certainly grew, but we did some M&A work. We uh, had a lot of organic, but we've acquired a total of four competitors over the last 25 years. Most of them are smaller deals, um, local. We did acquire one in Arizona, but we did three local deals and one in Arizona. And and they were, you know, good acquisitions to our growth and good relationships and good clients. And many of them we still have today. So I'm particularly interested in something you mentioned uh, earlier, like in terms of your entrepreneur journey, right? So you had the CPA arm, right? And and, and now you're creating the, the, the PO business. How did you think about where to put your energy into, right? The CPA arm, I'm, I'm sure, was, uh, was, was a big revenue driver, right? Maybe you saw some more growth on the, on the PO side. Yeah, what, what, <laughs> what went through your head, right? And how did you, how did you allocate your time? So in 1997, this was really the the catalyst for our growth and the evolution of the business. I was really trying to look for relationships that I could develop to grow the company. And through another CPA, made an introduction to a publicly traded temporary staffing firm, a company called Personnel Management. And Personnel Management was looking for investment opportunities and they were aware the PEO space was growing. We got introduced and through a series, over the course of a few months, they ended up making a minority interest investment in my company. So I had this public staffing firm invest in 1997 in my little business. And that was a true catalyst because I then had to formalize and put a board of directors together. 
it hit staffing industry news reports. So it was all over like, hey, this company got invested. So I was talking to all these uh, investment analysts and what are you doing? What are you guys going to go public? What are your plans? And my board of directors, literally, it was probably 98 at this point. So year, two years into it, we were at a board meeting and they said, Brent, you've got to pick a team. You, we're, we've made, there's this investment and you're going to have to make a decision. Either you're in the PEO space or you're a CPA, but you can't do both. And so at that meeting, it's like, no, I know where the opportunity is. I can do CPA, but this is really the business opportunity. So uh, I quickly then started and moved forward and sold my CPA firm in 1999 and uh, transitioned out and put all my energy then into the PEO space. So, so the answer was then essentially to, to make a decision, right? And, and right. bet on, on one horse and, and really focus on that. Right. Yeah, that's exactly what it was. It's like, okay, we're invested in you. We need your focus. So, so you mentioned you had like, you know, some, some ideas about the PO space early on, right? Just seeing what, what, what's happening in the market. How did you navigate the industry, right? In terms of like, you know, learning about your competition, um, industry associations, like what, what was your early involvement? If I think back to 25 years ago versus today, because, you know, just I'm going to compare and contrast. So if I were to open a business today, I mean, the world's at my fingertips. I can chase down competitors. I can get information. I can pull public reports because there's publicly traded PEOs. So I can go out and pull their quarterly reports and find out all kinds of information. In 1995, that didn't exist. I mean, um, we were doing something for a, some marketing things we're working on. So I had my PR team pull some data in 1995, and there was 23,000 websites in total in 1995. I think 13% of the world was on the web, 13%, right? I mean, there, it, it didn't exist. So when we started then, it really was, you know, trying to actually call your competition, somehow get your hands on their marketing materials. It was looking in the phone book to see who's advertising. It was, you know, by word of mouth. And one of the first things I did was join uh, NAPIO, which is our National Association right. for CEOs. Mm -hmm. And literally, that was my second check I wrote. The first check was for my rent in my, for my first rental space, the office space. The second check was to Napio so I could join and have them send me over all the information I could get on the industry. And that's how I early on got to get exposed and go to their meetings. I think it was, they had a national meeting just a month or so after I started the company in 90 in, in September. So it was like October. So I went out there with yellow pad in hand and took note after note, after note, ask everybody I could think of every question you could imagine. And, and that's how we all did it. We all in the early stages of the industry, we just, boy, we just really grew it together and tried to figure stuff out and a lot of phone calls back and forth and, you know, trial and error. I think this is something not just unique to the PO industry, right? That oftentimes the founders and CEOs of the most successful companies actually collaborate. The, the PO industry, other industries are not necessarily winner-takes-it-all market, right? Where you just have like one, one, one player. And oftentimes if you col collaborate and uh, exchange ideas, right, um, it, it, ben it benefits to the greater ecosystem. Um, so what was your specific involvement then with, with uh, Napio over the years? So it's one of these things that's grown over time. So early on, uh, back in the day when it first started, the, the association was broken up into uh, chapters. There were Midwest, I think Mid-Atlantic. I'm trying to remember all the different chapters there were. And so I got involved in the Midwest chapter and 
was involved there, got involved with some local stuff in Indiana that we were working on and was trying to learn how to get more involved. But over the years, ultimately was on certain different capacities, different committees, government affairs committees, state government affairs committees, uh, marketing, you know, committees, you name it. I was just kind of volunteering for whatever I could. And then as time progressed, ultimately I was, uh, uh, put on the board of directors and then on the board of directors became ultimately the uh, chairman. So kind of grew from just volunteering all the way through the chairman uh, time. And I was, I was very fortunate. Uh, The year that I was chairman, we had been battling for 20 plus years to get federal, a federal law passed and get federal recognition. And I was just very fortunate to be sitting in the chair as chairman the year that we finally got a bill in front of the president and it got signed. What a big win. Yeah. And so that was just a watershed moment for the industry. And I have a lot of fun teasing the former chairman that it finally got done on my watch. I'm, you know, (laughs) why couldn't they have got it done when in fact it was just a little bit of luck and timing, but, but that was an exciting part. And then since then I still stay active, uh, very active with the, uh, the industry and federal government affairs and other activity, but just, I've tried to cut back my time volunteering on as many committees <laughs> and activities as I used to. And dedicate more of that time to, to travel and adventure. Uh, there you go. Exactly. Yeah. And grandkids. So, so, so I want to switch topics a little bit and, and learn more about uh, the book that you published, right? Uh, go Slow to Grow Fast. What was the inspiration uh, to write the book? When I go back to my CPA days, uh, I was always struggling with helping solve this problem that I saw in almost every, in fact, in every one of my clients. And they had this cyclical nature where they would grow and then they'd have trouble. They'd have to restructure. They start growing again. And I'm a you know, young CPA and I hadn't yet honed business management skills or entrepreneurial skills. I was, you know, I was good on the balance sheet and income statement and helping design business plans, but I hadn't really didn't understand organizational structure. And I was at a continuing ed class uh, for my CPA license. And one of the the instructor drew this S curve on on this X, Y axis and drew this S curve kind of phenomena and pointed out that all companies go through this this S-curve life cycle where they grow and hit a ceiling. And then when they hit that ceiling, they retrench, have to re either restructure staffing or operations. Then they get to the bottom and then they grow again and they have these life cycles. And I was always intrigued by that. And that helped, you know, in my mind, answer what the phenomena phenomena was that these businesses were focused on or are facing. So then I started on this journey of thinking, how can I help companies better understand where they are in their life cycle so that those little ceilings they hit, those growth ceilings, they don't bounce off of them hard and then go into a trough or go out of business. They actually maybe do a slight adjustment here where they can anticipate and keep growing and keep scaling. And so that was the the driver for what ultimately became my book was I created these tools many years ago, back in the early 2000s, and created my own what I call quad four business model. And it was all around a couple key measurements and trying to really bring real practical approach to understanding how to run a business. And I had people that I'd work with and they say, Brent, you got to write a book about this stuff. This is good stuff. You know, you really helped me think about it. 
and can you write a book? And so um, after years and years of, you know, the, the outline sitting in my drawer, <laughs> I finally one day is like, my business coach just challenged me at an event. It's like, okay, it's time to do it. It's time to put pencil to paper and write the book. So that was the background, me just trying to solve it, coming up with these tools and ideas, and then finally saying, okay, let's put it down on paper. So I'm intrigued by the S-curve. You walk us through the life cycle, right, of, of a company. Yes. What are the different phases then along, along the, uh, the S-curve? The S-curve, it's one of these things where for the audience, if you can in your mind or if you have a piece of paper in front of you, just draw an XY axis and start in the bottom left corner and then just draw your line at an angle up and then you hit a point and it starts to curve and then you go down and then you get to the bottom trough and then you start going back up again. Then you hit a top and then you go down and the S-curve life cycle, I actually call it a lifeline. And that's your business lifeline. And it's really fascinating because as you're going up and you're growing and you can imagine growing as you're going up, you're growing in sales uh, on one axis is that and time on the other axis. So as you go over time and your sales go up, you see this growth. And then all of a sudden, if you see the sales decline over time and then you hit a bottom and you go back up, that's kind of the structure of it. And I call the period where you're going up the driving zone. Then I call the period when you hit the growth ceiling and you bounce off and start going down. I call to the bottom trough and back up again. I call that the drama zone. So you're either in a driving zone or a drama zone. And it's interesting because as I talk to companies, I can start to figure out based on how they tell me about their business, what zone they're in. And I always like to challenge people, you, you know, I know this, we're at a cocktail party and somebody says, tell me about how's your business going? Oh, we're killing it this year. We grew, you know, 80% over last year and on and on and on. And then when they tell me that, I want to say, okay, 80% growth. And I'm thinking, okay, how's your staff? How's morale? Are your customers happy? You know, are you able to scale and keep up? And oftentimes it's like, that's the stuff they don't want to tell you. They love the top line, but what they don't know is they're getting ready to implode because they've just outgrown their ability to sustain that growth. And they haven't put the right investment in the right places. And I know what's next. And next time I see them, it's like, oh, we're getting killed. <laughs> and that's kind of the S-curve. It, 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 it helps people kind of just understand where they are. And intuitively, people know. And, and what is typically, what are, what have you seen as the main driver for this? Is it like just top line growth uh, or the other factors uh, that contribute to being, you know, in one of those stages? There's actually a lot of things that contribute to it. And in my, in my book, I, I have a couple measurements that I try to talk about. So I my quad four was I was sitting at my... Uh, table at my house one evening back in the early 2000s. I was drawing this out and I had my S-curve and I was really just contemplating what that reflected. And I was trying to think about changing up the axes. And so what I ended up doing, instead of it just being an XY axis, I turned it into a quad. So I took one line and carried it all the way down and took the other line over. And I changed the the two axes and I changed the, the uh, vertical, the up and down, to a return on investment. So instead of it just being about gross revenue, I said, okay, let's make this one return on investment. And then let's take the horizontal line and make that operational effectiveness. So over time, and then I thought, okay, you have high and low and high and low and started thinking through, I thought, okay, if a company is getting a high return on their investment, 
and there's a high organizational effectiveness. So they're in that top right quadrant. That's the driving zone. That's where everything's running really well. And then I thought, okay, well, what if somebody has a real high return on investment? So they're at the top of the vertical, but they're real low on the horizontal line. So they're over on the left. So I call that quad one. And I thought, you know, that's kind of fool's gold. That's that entrepreneur that when I talk to them, they're focused on putting money to the bottom line, and but they take all the money out of their company. They don't invest in infrastructure. Talent. They, they don't hire talent. They probably borrow somebody's software. They don't go out and buy their own software. They probably have everybody as 1099s, no employees. They don't pay for benefits. They basically are just taking money out. They're not building an organization that's sustained to grow. So when I think about that lifeline and where people are in their cycle, that's where the quad four came from. It was me helping think about what are those things people are doing to contribute. So when I'm in the bottom two quadrants, so if you think of top left as one, then down to two, then next over to the right three, then back up to four, two and three are the drama zone areas. That's where you have a low return on investment. And if you're in quad two at the bottom, low return on investment, low organizational structure or effectiveness, that's a company in trouble. That's, you know, and, and I talk about in my book, but I often talk about the people that you can see that in businesses today. I think about Blockbuster, go Blockbuster video, and you can look at companies and go, wow, they were they were killing it. They were in quad one at one point, had all these retail stores all across the country. That's where everybody, you know, soccer mom stopped in the way home and picked up videos for the kids that night. And then they ignored technology. And all of a sudden, technology hit them across the head. They went directly into quad two because they weren't as organizationally, organizationally effective as the Redbox or Netflix. And then they couldn't recover, right? And then that's the issue with quad two is you can go out of business. And so I know it's very – this is kind of complicated for the listener, but it's really that idea that you're in one of four quads, and one of the four quads is going to help determine whether you're in a drama zone or a driving zone and the decisions you need to make to run your business. Yeah, I love that example, right? Because it's, it's it's so telling about disruptive innovation, right? If you think about Blockbuster owning the market essentially here in the United States, right? And then to your point, Redbox comes in with a slightly different model, right? Uh, and then you have Netflix with a, a totally different model, right? And then cleaning up the, the, the market. If you would think about like the, the, the drama zone, right? That you're describing, what are what are typically specifically for, for POs the contributing factors to get into the drama zone? You mentioned high growth, right? Um, is it oftentimes about not setting the right strategy, leadership team alignment, getting the wrong people in? What, what are typical things that-, that Everything that you, you just <laughs> said. <laughs> you know, it's, it's interesting because I, as, I, as I work with companies and, and, and coach them or do a seminar and we get in these conversations and this very much this conversation you and I are having, and I'm talking to these, these leaders and we talk about, I, I always challenge them you know, in their strategic planning to ask the question, what'll put you out of business? Put that on every, every time you do strategic planning, what'll put you out of business? And you have to walk through and, you know, you talk about, it could be the death of the leader, right? You could have a, the whole hit by a bus thing. It could be maybe a cyber attack. Uh, you know, I always bring up world events like a pandemic, but pandemics never happen. So don't worry about those, right? Obviously, everyone knows that happened now, you know, <laughs> but yet no one ever thought a pandemic would ever happen. 
but yet you have to plan for them. And so this whole idea of what will put you out of business, but the things you just rattled through is high growth. What are the things high growth is going to do to me? And do I have the talent? Do I have the people? Do I have the right strategy? Is there disruptive technology like the Blockbuster example? So all of this ongoing planning has to be done so that people can look around corners and anticipate so that when something does happen and there is a disruptive technology or there is a cyber attack or whatever may happen, that the company can be nimble enough to have a small drama, but not get pulled way down into it. And, you know, PEOs, you know, we, we're just like every industry, every industry, no one's immune to this. And in, in our own industry, a few months ago, the predominant technology platform for the HR software that I think 80 plus percent of the, the independent PEOs use had a cyber attack. And it, it, literally brought the industry to a halt and everybody had to scramble and work together. And we got back online within a week and and got through, but it could have been catastrophic had that not happened. And everybody worked together. That's real collaborative um, industry that really is competitors. We all worked, but it makes you realize that there's threats around every corner that you think you're prepared for, but you, you can't. So I always start with, you know, doing that, making sure you're really trying to think of all those little pieces. But then the other piece is what are you doing just at a very basic level to make sure your operational effectiveness or your what things you're doing internally can scale. So if you're going to grow and you're going to grow over, you know, they say that if you grow more than about 18 percent a year, you really have to be investing in your infrastructure to make sure that you can scale because companies that grow 25, 30, 40%, you quickly outpace your organizational effectiveness and then you're going to find yourself in trouble. So how do you get that right balance between growth and investment? I want to talk a little bit more about these catalyst events that you mentioned, right? Well, it's a security uh, issue that shakes up the industry or you, you, you mentioned that the pandemic here that we all went through. Um, you know, typically in these, in these kind of crisis moments, right? You see winners, you see losers, right? The, the companies that, that you were involved with, what, what were some of the characteristics of the companies that took advantage, right? And, and, and thrive in these difficult in, in environments? Yeah, I think there's there's opportunities in all these different types of environments. And for ourselves, as an example, last year when the pandemic hit and then the government quickly jumped into uh, hyper mode to react quickly. And what's really interesting, I'm going to do a little side note here. If you go back and read about how the government responded in the recession of 08, 09 and how long it took to get stimulus into the economy, prolong the recession and there were lessons learned so when this hit um the the race to a stimulus package was much from what was learned when the great recession hit and so the ppaca and the cares act and the paycheck protection loans came and put all that stimulus money really i helped help stabilize whether people agree or don't or disagree really helped put a lot of money and stabilize businesses when it was necessary well, they were very complicated rules for small businesses to be able to follow. And because PEOs specialize in managing these types of regulations related around employment, we were able to very quickly understand 
how to comply, what to do. So for us, we, we really, we could have gone out and tried to keep selling, but everybody was in, you know, panic mode. We put all of our energy into stabilizing our clients. And so our clients, you know, constant communication, constant COVID information, Here's how you get your PPP loans. Here's how you do all of these different things so they could go grow their business and, and or save their business and or, you know, whatever they had to do. So the PEO industry, and I know us specifically, the opportunity there was to really show our value in that they were able to stabilize while some companies just didn't know what to do. And in fact, um, the P, there were some studies we've done as an industry and the PPO, those companies that use PEOs actually responded better and more quickly during the pandemic than those who didn't. And so it's a testament to the fact that, you know, your people should focus on what they're good at and what they should be doing and take those non-core things like what we do in HR and government regulations and outsource it to people who know, because it's well worth it because you can, you can be so much more nimble as a company to do that. So I always try to, to find a couple of nuggets, right, for, for our um, PO leadership team that, that are listening in. We talked earlier about the importance of, of measuring results and, and KPIs and whatnot. What are, you know, certain KPIs that, that you think every PO owner sh should look at, like, you know, whether it's on a weekly, monthly, quarterly basis? Key measurements that I measure, and these are specific to my quad four methodology, is return on investment, so ROI, and I'll define that in a moment. It's a little different than what most people think it is, and revenue per employee. So I'll start with revenue per employee. Um, revenue per employee is the measurement by which I think a company is effective. So it's measuring measuring organizational effectiveness, and if I can measure that, then on my horizontal line in my quad four that's the measure that's how i measure whether a company is highly effective or not and because everything we do contributes to revenue per employee it's either i have fewer employees so i'm driving more revenue per employee and or i have more efficient and effective systems that i can manage more peo clients and manage more in and higher volume with fewer people, or I'm leveraging technology in a way that I'm, you know, able to onboard my client employees, which is becoming more common, obviously, with, you know, onboarding electronically than we did years ago. But that one's all about driving revenue per employees, like the, my number one number. Now, my other return on investment, it's return on investment based on how much you pay your employees. So if I'm trying to measure revenue per employee, I also want to know how much profit am I generating based on the money I'm investing in people. And that's a little different than revenue return on investment like you would think about from investing in an asset. But I think that's the same thing. If I'm going to buy a real estate, you know, a commercial building, I want to know how much I'm investing in that and then how much profit do I make each year? Well, as a business owner, it's the same thing. If you're running an operation like a PEO, that is your asset, is your people. And how much you pay them, you should be able to determine how much you're making profit on that. And so those are my key two key measurements. But then after I get off to that, after that, I like to measure non-financial uh, numbers, or at least it's some something that's not looking in the rearview mirror. And that's where oftentimes, whether you weekly, monthly, 
quarterly, like revenue per employee, you can measure on a weekly basis. You can very quickly see it as real time. Return on investment is a little more challenging because you got to wait till you get your numbers unless you have a system that can generate that timely. But on a, when it comes to the other ones, it's like, okay, how much time am I investing in my people in knowledge? So let's talk about hours in education. Let's talk about uh, tickets that are open and how quickly are we closing tickets and service requests. What's the velocity of my cash flow? And looking at those types of things, you know, PEOs have huge cash flow. So what am I doing and how much money am I able to, on my current cash, am I retaining, et cetera? So I tend to look at those numbers that are non-financial to give me some idea of how well I'm performing. And how do you think about customer satisfaction, net promoter score? Like, where, where, where does that live in, in, your, in your, your, your ecosystem? I love the net promoter score idea. I do. I, I think it's really novel. I like it. I struggle with it sometimes because I get people who ask me to respond to it. And I guess I've had it asked enough. I kind of get numb to it. So I just don't respond. And I know why they're looking. I know what they're trying to do. And I should do it. And I think, okay, are there other people just like me out there that I'm asking? So the only people I'm getting is not maybe a good enough sample size to really give me an idea if it, that my net promoter score is accurate or not. And I do think it's a good tool. I think it's something we all should have in our arsenal of things we ask. Sometimes I struggle as to how, how much can I rely on that one just because I have to get a sample size that's big enough to really make me feel like I have promoters or demoters. Yeah, and how, how do we do we overcome the survey fatigue, right? And, and yes. to your point, oftentimes we see a, a bias, right? Like the extremes, like the, the people who are super happy or super unhappy that that, that are responding, right? Um, but yeah, I think with with any kind of KPI system, right? It's it's a breath, right, of, of different KPIs that that then build kind of like this 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 puzzle together, right? Um, and you can see that the health of the the company. You know, it's kind of interesting, and this you know from a PEO operator perspective. And I'm sure others have already identified this many years ago. It was kind of an aha moment for me, not in the last few years. Years ago, when we first started, the people who bought were the entrepreneurs. You know, they were maybe not bleeding edge, but they were kind of leading edge. Like, hey, this is a new way of running my business. They felt maybe a little more sophisticated than the next entrepreneur because they were outsourcing things other people weren't. And today, though, it's changed dramatically because the PEO industry is accepted as just a way of doing business. And what's interesting is it used to be the buyer was just the, the owner. And then everybody just jumped in line and they used the PEO services. Now we think there's two customers. You have both the entrepreneur owner who's intrigued by it because it's a better strategic business decision going back to what'll put you out of business and them saying, hey, I'm just going to outsource these things I'm, we're not good at. We find that the people who run the operations now are, are migrating towards and wanting PEOs because they recognize that the stuff PEOs do is a waste of their time. Where in the past, they wanted to do that stuff because that's what they felt good about. Now the operations people are the ones who really also embrace PEO. So it's kind of interesting because when you talk about net promoter score, or you think of other ways of measuring, you kind of have to think about measuring it from two different frame of references, from an operator's perspective, and also then from a CEO's perspective. And I think as time goes on, the CEOs or entrepreneurs get further and further away from what PEOs do and what we offer because their teams are who work with us. 
it sounds like the, the sales process is getting more complex, right? As you're having different buyer buying personas, right? And uh, Absolutely. whatnot. How do you think about positioning and messaging and, and, and that concept? Yeah, we're working on that right now. We have some really good things we're working on, trying to think about the buyer persona specifically to, um, in my book, and people will appreciate this, my book, I have two, I use a fable to tell the story and, and then, you know, my consulting I do throughout the book, but my two people in the book are Frank and Susan. Frank's the entrepreneur, hard charging engineer. Susan's the controller, been there forever. Um, and the two of them go on this journey in my book about how they, how they're performing, take them through the life cycle, their lifeline, the quad four model, help them kind of navigate where their business is. And in the end, the book's pretty much selling why they should consider, you know, using a PEO. It's very subtle, but it's in there. And uh, so when we think of buyer personas, we use Frank and Susan. So Frank is the entrepreneur persona. Susan's the controller. I mean, you know, obviously we have to be gender neutral and all those things, but in the book that was their, their, who they were, but it helps us think about who the buyer is. And uh, it also, the information we share and how we talk about our services. And I think it fits really well. Well, Brent, thank you so much for all the insights today and, and, and take the time. Uh, I truly enjoyed it. If if somebody wants to find you, wants wants to reach out, wants to connect, what, what, what's the best way to, uh, to connect with you, Brent? The best way is to go out to brentrtilson.com, brentrtilson.com. And that's my book website. And there's contact information there. There's actually an assessment that companies, 10 simple questions that'll kind of help you figure out where you are uh, in your lifeline of your business today and uh, uh, see if you're in a drama zone or a driving zone. So I'd encourage the listeners to go out and take a quick assessment. They can drop me a note from there as well, um, or certainly through tilsonhr.com, which is uh, my PEO's website. And uh, certainly just drop me a line through either of those and I can be in connected with them. This podcast is sponsored by ThrivePass, a trusted PO partner for employee benefits from pre-tax accounts to COBA administration. ThrivePass empowers employees to thrive through exceptional service and innovative technology. More at thrivepass.com. Thanks for listening to today's episode. Don't forget to subscribe and visit us at po-podcast.com to learn more. I'm Andreas Deptoller and this is the PEO Podcast. We'll see you next time.